Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 29th of January 2018 and this is episode number 48. In this episode, I talk to military historian and battlefield guide Clive Harris about the Hindenburg Line during the First World War. Clive, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the First World War? Yeah, for me, from my earliest memories is my dad showing me some uh, uh, historical items around the house, mostly through the Second World War because we lived so close to London, we had air raid uh, sirens outside the house and what have you, and I, I've just become hooked on it. And uh, when we moved into uh, Welling Garden City, um, it's a big retirement town, and I noticed on my paper round that a lot of the guys that lived in the, the, the little cottages I used to deliver to uh, were First World War veterans. So I got talking to them, just as you do, down the shops. I was in the Church Lads Brigade, so played the bugle at a few funerals of, uh, of old soldiers, that sort of thing. And what became obvious was what they were telling me about the Great War, what I was being taught in the 1970s at school, just didn't add up. So it became something that was really intriguing for me. I thought I'd opened this sort of box of forgotten memories about the First World War because in the 1970s, it was a, a very different sort of education we got. We were taught morality as opposed to history, which is no bad thing, but you know sometimes... We need to know which is which. Um, and then at school, I, I won an essay prize, got to meet the town's last surviving Boer War veteran. And uh, a lot of these entourage of people around him were First World War vets. Uh, and three or four, I, I used to kind of help out around the house and got to know quite well. And uh, they were really my inspiration. They told me about the Western Front Association. And I used to borrow the magazines off of a longtime member called Bob Greener. And uh, it was the First World War soldiers that uh, told me to join the army, actually. So... I went into the army straight from school, and um, the rest, as I say, is history, really, on leaving the army, a bit of time in the police, and then straight into um, battlefield guiding, which now has been my full-time job since uh, uh, 2000 and, or 1998, actually. So to begin with, what was the Hindenburg, and who was Hindenburg? Well, that's a kind of a, a misnomer anyway, because if you would, Hindenburg was, was uh, uh, the German military commander, and uh, the Germans, when they constructed the Hindenburg Line, which was a way of pulling back in the uh, sort of winter of 16, spring of 17, to pull back to an area that's easier to send and use the existing infrastructure of a network of tunnels, some of which have been dug in Napoleon's time. Uh, and they would have called it the Siegfried Stellung. So it's only the British that name it the Hindenburg Line after uh, Paul von Hindenburg, the, the German commander. So if you were German, you were asking me that question, I'd be saying, you know, Voss is das, because it, it would have been known as the Siegfried Stellung to them. And uh, it was just uh, quite an incredible defensive position, a defense in depth. I think sometimes people don't understand the scale of the Hindenburg Line in that, uh, you know, the, the approaches and the, the barbed wire and the outer Hindenburg Line outposts could be up to 10 kilometers, if not further, from the main line itself. And then it was a series of lines uh, that were often based around uh, sort of dominant positions and rivers that meant that uh, it was very difficult to, to not only penetrate the, the line itself, but then consolidate yourself on it. So where exactly is or was the Hindenburg line in France? Big hand, small map, hard obviously uh, to, to do it on a 
podcast. But if you sort of uh, strike from uh, San Quentin or San Quentin uh, in the south and you head north towards Cambrai and uh, and then north of Cambrai even uh, out towards Valenciennes, uh, in front of that position heading uh, east, uh, west, westwards towards the Somme, it could be about 10, 15 kilometers in depth. I mean, you could argue that when the Canadians first start to come across the Hindenburg Line outpost in their sector in front of Arras, you know, that's the, really the, uh, the Crow's Nest and the Drocourt Quillot switch line are the outposts of the Hindenburg Line. So it's a huge deep area in, involving lots of villages as well and uh, a, a quite serious networks of roads so you're able to supply all of your, your frontline positions. So when it was constructed, what type of defences did it have? Initially on the drawback, there was a scorched earth policy. So when the Germans up and left, you know, in the spring of uh, 1917, and you've got to remember what the Germans had been experiencing the year before, not only on the Somme, but also, you know, down at Verdun, where the the French army had uh, uh, caused catastrophic losses on on the Germans and and, uh, as they had suffered themselves from the Germans. So the Germans had no real choice but to sort of pull back position because they were now feeling the uh, the sort of the naval blockade. There was few little problems starting at home, and so to withdraw back to this pre-defensive line, uh, they they formulated a scorched earth policy of uh, machine gun teams being left behind, delayed action bombs, chopping down trees, destroying villages and roads, that sort of thing, to almost give us a buffer. So you could say that was the initial thing you'd crop up against. Now, if you're attacking, the one thing that you need to do if you're advancing or on the offensive is you need to know where your enemy are. If you don't know where they are, they could be behind you or going around the side of you. So for the BF, uh, it was our job was to advance in contact with the enemy. So it was a pretty slow process. It brought us up throughout the, uh, really, Battle of Arras included, places like Bullocor, getting up into and getting a footing into the Hindenburg Line and then up to Villas Gislaine, Gislaine and uh, overlooking so you can now look down onto the Hindenburg Line. And all the time we'd come up against defensive positions, 360-degree defensive positions and uh, um, big belts of barbed wire and interlocking machine gun positions. So it was very well thought out, very well constructed. And how did the Germans man the line? Because I think they built it partly to save manpower so they could actually concentrate on, on offences in the east. Was it, was it generally operated or did, did groups of troops actually get to know stretches of the line or did they rotate units in, in and out? Well, a lot of German units would take over a piece of line and stay there as, as, as long as possible. But one of the benefits of, of the Hindenburg line and the way it was constructed is you didn't need to pack the trenches. You could almost have... Um, like a strategic reserve that was able to go if it was under threat. And also you could lightly man these positions. And so that uh, that kind of, in a way, negated what was becoming the, the British artillery dominance on the Western Front, our ability to, to almost shell our way forward. Because, you know, 1917, which is the year we're really looking at with the, German, the British first start to advance up to the Hindenburg Line uh, and find themselves opposite it, um, was a year for artillery for us, if you think about not only the Arras offensive and the, the 106 graves for use, but then moving north up towards Messines, which again is often forgotten as a major artillery bat, uh, battle because of the significance of the tunnelling. So we're advancing in artillery, but in some way the Hindenburg line could work like a sponge in that it could soak up the shells without it causing the, the losses amongst the Germans. Uh, that uh, we really we needed, uh, and at the same time, because of the depth and size of it, those shells landing on the Hindenburg Line were never enough to actually break our way through it. Certainly not in 1917. 
So what you're saying is that the, art the range of the artillery was significantly shorter than the actual line itself. So the Germans had a great deal of depth where they could actually operate unhindered by British artillery. Absolutely. And because of its length, you can remember when you're using artillery, it's not only the depth. If you can move those positions and, and fire from a flank, you can reduce the depth. So, you know, an artillery um, field of fire is up and wide and deep. So it's not just about how far deep you can go. It's where you position them. But because it was such over such a length, it was very hard for the British to get their guns on a flank to fire, you know, along the side of it, if that makes sense. Um, I think the most important thing was that the Hindenburg Line probably gave... Uh, the German army an extra six months or so um, to sort of settle down prior to their, their own spring offensive in 1918 because uh, I think there's a, a fair few German quotes suggesting that if we'd have carried on with the Somme offences in 1917 whether the Germans would have been able to have held the positions and certainly given their then 1916 counter-attack policy of every time we attack them they will attack back three or four times. So in a way, it was a, highly, it was a highly effective response to British technological superiority in terms of the tank um, artillery and increasing material dominance of the battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. And then shows really good uh, awareness of, um, you know, when I was in the army, what we call the three Ts. You know, they use technology, tactics and terrain all to their advantage. And by using all three of those, it, it, was, um, it was probably the most... Uh, imposing defensive position the British Army's ever come across. And did the Allies, uh, obviously the French included, manage to penetrate the line at all? In 1917, in little areas they would have got in, it was consolidation was the, the, the problem. Uh, and then in 1918, the spring of 18, of course, that's when the Germans use it as pretty much their launch pad for their, their march offensive, certainly in the British sector. Um, if you think Manchester Hill... Uh, is actually overlooking the uh, Hindenburg line to the, near to uh, Saint-Quentin. And, you know, that's one of the areas that's overrun fairly early on the 21st of March and all the way across the line. So they jump out of the, uh, the Hindenburg line. But in the September, as we start to advance back, once the, I think by that stage we've got so many men and materials and we too are understanding our own offensive strategy a lot better than we had at any stage in the war. We were able to get through it and over it. And actually the... Uh, the, the attack on the uh, Hindenburg Line uh, joint Anzac uh, American and British attack in the September, certainly in the British sector, uh, sector was one of the most successful of the war. I know my grandfather was actually wounded um, in the 56th um, Division, London Division, as they actually moved down through the Kindenburg Line, in the sort of not necessarily going through it, but going um, down its sort of fortifications near Bullincourt in, in, uh, in August 1917. That London division comes up against Hindenburg Line quite a lot. All the way through from uh, Tadpole Cops, really, is, is one of the outer uh, outposts of the Hindenburg Line. But then also they were on the flank of the Canadian advance the following year in the September, and their job was to actually uh, sort of head to the north and keep up a screen for the Canadians to advance across and to get into Bourlon Wood, which in itself was an integral part of the German defences. That's obviously Bourlon Wood during the Battle of Cambrai in November, December 1917. So, uh, well, in the 18 is when the Canadians capture it. Uh, but you're right, of course, the 47th Division are in the, uh, in the wood as well on the, uh, in the November, December. So London troops are forever connected with that area of the, of the Western Front. Now, Clive, you're a battlefield guide. Is there anything left of the Hindenburg Line on the Western Front? Well, it's 100 years now, so like, um, it's not like going to Normandy and seeing all of the infrastructure that still survives uh, because it's uh, agricultural land. 
so a lot of the stuff was reclaimed. Yeah, there, there are bits and bobs for you to find out there. If you actually get to Gauche Wood, some of the deepest trenches I can think of in the British sector, and they're overlooking a number of outposts in around uh, Effie, and you can find British observation bunkers in, in back gardens that still exist. But uh, a couple of things, the return to agriculture, which has uh, reclaimed a lot of the land, the villages have been reoccupied. But one of the joys of this sector over, say, visiting the Somorites is that quite a lot of the uh, houses do still contain the scars of, of, of battle and damage, whereas on the Somorites, the whole place was rebuilt. So there's very few battle scars still in evidence. And the other thing, is, of course, is we've pretty much now the canal network was, needs to be up and running, but you can see bunkers all the way along the canal at uh, Boney that still exist. And then they've built a large motorway that cuts through the middle as well. So that's going to reclaim a lot of the area. If you go to Pigeon Ravine, for instance, where it would have been open fields, there's now a, a large auto uh, route. So you can dig around and you still get a sense of its scale and size. And I think it's one of the most rewarding areas to visit on the Western Front. And are there any tunnel networks still in existence? <laughs> I'm sure there are. Um, I wouldn't recommend people go down them. Uh, local farmers are able to take you to little bits of tunnels. They're not as extensive uh, as you would find, say, Dimmy Ridge or uh, um, uh, the Wellington Tunnels at Arras. Um, but there are a number of entrances that are capped off and uh, local hunters and farmers would know where, where the, some of the infrastructure still survives. And do you think there are any lessons that military historians can take from the Hindenburg Line and its operation during the First World War? Oh, very much so. Um, and in fact, uh, we, we, one of my companies um, does a lot of tours for the British military today. And it's not just about uh, looking at history, it's learning from it. So um, we certainly take a lot of the, uh, the Royal School of Artillery, for instance, will go and study the development of artillery in the Great War and how that's relevant to today because the British Army is now, after the withdrawal down from uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, we're starting to look about look at fighting in open ground again in mass formations, which is something that the 1918 in particular gives us. And there are a number of lessons that are relevant to the British Army today that they can pick up from 1918. Um, the hardest thing for us in that is, of course, the size. You know, the British Army size today minuscule compared to the one of 1918. Obviously, 80-odd thousand compared to 5 million in 1918. Yeah, absolutely. So, in fact, you know, it's quite interesting to see some of these guys at the top of their game in the Royal Artillery at uh, on the Master Gunners course, uh, seeing the size of the train set that their contemporaries would have had to play with in 1918. You know, it's quite incredible for them to try and uh, scale up you know, when you think that every field gun in 1918, by the time we break the Hindenburg line, is allocated 500 rounds a day. And if we take that back to the first months of the war, um, I believe that if the British Army is to fire all its ammunition off that it has with it in France at a rate of three rounds a minute, we've got something like 12 and a half minutes ammunition. Uh, so the Hindenburg line is a vehicle for us to look at the Great War and, and what we become compared to what we, we entered the war at. And one of the, the major considerations of that is actually on the home front, our ability to turn the UK from you know, an arts and crafts society into one of the great manufacturing uh, industrial nations of, of, of the world as a result of their need to feed the guns in the Great War. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. 
The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.